I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Hey, J. This is Dr. Sudler, study for a pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. Sorry, Josh told me to be brief today. And if it doesn't say micro machines, it's not the real thing. <laughs> oh, how, what I want, an, I want from our audience. I want someone to please tell me if you remember micro machines. <laughs> it would be so wonderful to know that there's like old geezers like us listening to podcasts. It'd be so happy. Uh, just people speeding their podcasts up to two times. So we all sound like this all the time anyway when we're talking and you never know how fast we're really going into their life. <laughs> and then they meet us face to face. It's like, oh, I never imagined you talked like that. Well, I don't know if those of you at home have noticed, but we have been trying to even further condense the episodes for you. And also a little bit for me because editing takes time. Yeah. And you know what we haven't done, Santosh, is we haven't gone on any journeys. Yeah, I, this is Travel Medicine Podcast after all. Literal or metaphorical. And I think it's time we bring back an old favorite and set off to discover another one of our Around the World in 80 Plagues. <laughs> Which... So... We're not actually going terribly far from home on this particular well, around the world. We'll reveal the subject in just a bit. You did a beautiful job researching this particular subject here in the United States, but I'm about to introduce you to a whole new world of this pathogen. Should I dare close no. my eyes? Are there new horizons Hold to your pursue? Breath. It gets better. I want to personally thank you, by the way, if I haven't done so yet on this podcast, for permanently ruining my wedding song for me. You dirty... <laughs> Before you open my eyes yes. with every moment red letter, I want to take you folks back to 1896, 
in the Idaho Valley where the wife and child of the governor of Montana had died. Because it was the governor, he demanded that Congress do something to help study the mysterious disease that had killed them. This disease known only as the black measles. It looked remarkably like measles at the time, right? You got a fever and you felt really crappy. Sometimes you got a sore throat, just like with measles, and bloodshot eyes, just like with measles. The problem is, though, you'd get these spots all over, and then the most curious thing would happen from time to time. Those spots would turn purple. Or they would turn black. Like yeah. you were afflicted with what some kind of Harry Potter I spell. At the time was Eschars or Eschars. I still don't know how to pronounce that. Montana had only become a state in 1889. After fears of seeing this disease, the Montana State Board of Health was created in 1901 for the sole purpose of bringing scientists to the Bitterroot Valley to investigate the cause, treatment, and prevention of whatever was going on with this disease. So, before we bury the lead, <laughs> I know all of you at home are clapping along, no, going, no, no, I know I, what it is! In 1902, pathology professor at University of Chicago, Howard Ricketts, first identified and studied the organism after interviewing numerous victims of the disease and collecting and studying infected animals. That's right, this disease was an equal opportunity infector. Howard Ricketts had previously studied another disease in the Midwest, blastomycosis, which sounds so much cooler than it actually is. And like all good scientists of the early 1900s, was known to inject himself with stuff just to measure its effects. You know, he had a free weekend, <laughs> figured, you know yeah, what I want to do? Get yeah, high on measles. Coming into the era of modern medicine learning a little bit about germ theory at this point? I mean, this is a very early experimental manifest destiny, go west, young scientist era of investigation. And in addition to all these interviews and animal collecting, he returned each summer to the Bitterroot Valley. And finally, in 1906, 10 years after the disease first emerged in the U.S., proved that it was transmitted by the bite of the Rocky Mountain wood tick, which brings us to today's plague, Mm -hmm. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or to be less specific, just rickettsia in general. By 1909, he isolated the bacterial organism, and that was named rickettsia rickettsi in his honor. The truest calling of any scientist is to have a disease or something infectious named and after you. you. You already had the family name, you know, after a debilitating deficiency of vitamin D. And so now you go out and you decide to find a new bacterium. And, you know, Robert Cook uh, was around this time. And, you know, Paul Ehrlich was coming around. And these were guys who were finally putting together these pieces that like, hey, there's tiny little things that von Leeuwenhoek has found, you know, a little while back. And these tiny little things can actually hurt us and be transmitted. We're in this era now of bacteriology. We have Cook's postulates, Josh. You know, remember Cook's postulates? Step one, add salt. No. <laughs> Cook's postulates two, describing the transmission of infectious diseases and the, the pathology of how a bacteria can cause a disease, sir. This is one of the first visualized 
infectious agents. It was really a cool time to be around. Even before we could visualize it, because we're still working in the early, early 1900s, and the amusing but tragic, or tragic but amusing ending of Professor Ricketts, is that a state budget shortage basically put the funding of all his research in Montana in jeopardy. And because of the uncertainty of getting paid, he accepted funding to work on an outbreak of typhus in Mexico City, where he was almost at retirement. And no, he wasn't going to retire. But shortly before the study concluded, he oh. contracted the disease yeah, he was yeah, studying, this, typhus, this and died of a, soon after. A, a occupational um, hazard at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Santos, when your funding is in no, jeopardy, no, you don't you know, traditionally... Of uh, like, end up having you know, your life. Oh, put whatever at risk. I was studying, I'll just put in myself, you know, type of thing. It's not all that old, right? Um, we have not gotten to this particular plague yet, but hopefully soon we'll get to H. pylori. The discoverer down in Australia said, Hey guys, there's stuff living in the horribly acidic lining of the stomach. And everyone said, Ah, you're a lunatic. So he went and swallowed a culture of H. pylori and gave himself massive ulcers and then won a Nobel Prize. Actually, there's a couple other very interesting characters who showed up as I was researching the history. And I'll try and weave it in as our infectious disease doctor talks about rickettsia in general and Rocky Mountain specifically. But I just thought it was really neat that research continued on Rocky Mountain spotted fever even after Professor Ricketts died. And one of the people involved in it was a college student working for the U.S. Biological Survey, Clarence Birdseye. Now, if you're not quite familiar why that name is even remotely important, uh, he spent you know most of 1910 just shooting and trapping tiny animals and picking bugs off them and collected almost 4,500 ticks uh, and bringing them to the newly established Rocky Mountain Laboratory. And after he finished that summer internship, he went to go on to develop the concept of frozen foods and You've establish the bird's eye company. Dude. Same dude that still sells no. you TV <laughs> dinners today. Guy. That's the one. <laughs> In the frozen food it's section. The, the very same. It's the very same. Good Lord. A little bit about Howard T. Ricketts and one of the greatest entries in a medical journal that I've ever seen. This is a historical quote from 1907, Transactions of the Chicago Pathological Society. And I quote, The tick was obtained from the chest of a man very ill with spotted fever and applied to the arm of a man who had been in the hospital for two months and had lost both feet from gangrene due to freezing. On the eighth day, the patient became ill and passed through a mild course of spotted fever, leaving the characteristic eruption. The experiment was repeated. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. The experiment was repeated by placing the tick on a woman's leg, and she likewise was infected with spotted fever. Although these results received no publicity other than given in reports to local societies, I take pleasure in, according to Dr. McCalla and his colleague, Dr. Baraton, the credit of having first shown that the tick may act as a carrier of spotted fever. They were performed with the full consent of the patients concerned. This was in a journal in 1907. This is 
a century ago, <laughs> all right, he took a tick off a dude. He he found another dude in the hospital who was just hanging out because he had lost his legs and and hands to gangrene. And so he goes, hey, I want to prove you're going to get spotted fever. And if that's true, I can show you exactly where spotted fever comes from. And that other guy, okay. <laughs> this was in the I days before that guy going this tick has been on a lovely eligible young bachelor miss do we have consent to place it on and see if you two are compatible there, for this disease my oh my and lovely listeners <laughs> please there do go no on such thing as antibiotics in this day all right you were lucky if someone was insane enough to try to infect you with malaria to get rid of your rickettsia. <laughs> okay. We've covered a little bit of that in our History of Antibiotics series, it's and we'll true. cover a little bit more in upcoming episodes as to all the things that were done before we had antibiotics. People got very enthusiastic about their science, and I know that there's certainly a current of anti-intellectualism and uh-huh. anti-science oh, running through our our current climate today, but we are not alone in this time. In fact, as research is continuing on these ticks, they knew, okay, well, you have to clean ticks off the wild, wild animals and livestock. So dipping vats were placed throughout the Bitterroot Valley, and ranchers were gently encouraged by threat of quarantine and loss of income to drive their herds through the <laughs> nearest station to them so cattle could swim through a gentle bath full of arsenic. And the ranchers objected somewhat to this to the point that, oh, maybe two years wow. into it, the yeah. one vat was it. destroyed by dynamite and the other one was broken with sledgehammers. I, I want to say they sent the lab into hiding, but that's not entirely accurate. They just needed to find a remote place which was quiet yeah, yeah. And, and, and where you know, not likely you know, they could run these experiments to be on animals that by angry dynamite toting with ranchers. Them the burden of like livelihood, right? So like if the animals or something got hurt, you know, you wouldn't put someone out of house and home. Right. And in true science fiction horror movie fashion, around nineteen twenty one a scientist in charge by the name of Parker found an abandoned schoolhouse on the opposite side of the valley's river from the ranchers and took one look at this broken down, abandoned one room, you know, Puritan era kind of schoolhouse and said, no way this is built on any kind of graveyard or haunted by evil spirits. I'm going to build a lab to study an infectious disease here. And it became unofficially yes. known as schoolhouse yes. lab. Where the two lead scientists ground (laughs) up infected ticks into a powder, mixed it, (laughs) chanting double, double, boil and double, created a vaccine for rickettsia. Basically taking corpses of these uh, ticks and the the kind of dead rickettsia in there and using a lysed whole cell vaccine without, I'm guessing, any adjuvant. This feels like the community college version it's, of Hogwarts. It's a bit crude, and this is granted, but, you know, it, it's terribly effective. Worst and, potions class um, ever. You know, this is when you're first shaping, you know, what you're going to use from a medical scientific standpoint to try to stave off a disease, which is really kind of ravaging animal and human alike. 
right? You just have to kind of go for it. This is frontier medicine. Um, and you didn't have time to sit there and go, well, okay, you know, do we first make sure all the components are safe and then we test it in a lab and then on a mouse and then et cetera. Unfortunately, you, you didn't know all that stuff. So you just had to go for it. There are several different rickettsial diseases. Some of the ones we're really just going to be focusing on are typhus and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, uh, which have usually some very unique skin findings. And we don't normally talk about a lot of derm stuff on this show, uh, but we're going to try and do a little bit more. So you've got Rocky Mountain spotted fevers caused by a rickettsia disease, yeah. epidemic typhus, murine typhus, murine meaning coming from any kind of mouse, rat, rodent-ish, yeah. scrub typhus, and just like TLC, you don't want no scrubs. And finally, <laughs> rickettsia pox. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is the one that we see here in the United States, which by uh, wonderful coincidence doesn't show up all that much in the Rockies. <laughs> it's actually mainly in Appalachia. But I will be talking to you about the spotted fever group. So uh, should should I start going down a little bit of the, our friends, the Rickettsia? Okay, so let me break it down. In the United States, going at the top kind of alphabetically, we have anaplasma, and that causes human anaplasmosis, all transmitted by a tick. We have Ehrlichia. This is also uh, in the Northeast United States and possibly also in Venezuela. Scrub typhus, Josh, which is actually not in the Rickettsia group it's it, it's orientia it's kind of its own thing Tsutsugamushi and always will be to me right and that <laughs> that one's over in asia Tsutsugu- it's- and then the spotted fever group josh believe it or not we know rocky mountain spotted fever here in the united states but the spotted fever group comprises over 20 different species of rickettsia spanning the entire globe except antarctica so you can find uh, Rickettsia africae, Rickettsia acari, uh, Rickettsia australis, Rickettsia felis, uh, Rickettsia hylong janginis in uh, far east of Russia and China, Massilie, um, parkeri, uh, Rickettsia rickettsia, which is here in north central and south America, uh, Sabrika, which is in Russia, China, and Mongolia. There are so, so many of these Rickettsia, but they share characteristics of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever in that you get a fever, a bad headache, and this petechial spots that start out at the periphery, like by your wrists, and then make their way uh, closer to your trunk. So that's the Spotted Fever group. The vast majority are transmitted by ticks. After we get down off of that, we get to typhus, split into murine typhus, as you said, which is flea-borne, and then epidemic typhus, or sylvatic typhus, which is uh, louse-born. It's the lousy typhus, and it's kind of the evil, the really bad one. Yeah, Rickettsia typhi, the murine typhus, is kind of the nice, you know, the gentle one. Uh, a, a related organism that we won't be talking about much on this particular uh, 80 plagues, but we should get to in the future, which is Q fever, or Coxiella burnetti. That's our family of... Rickettsia, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Spotted Fever Group, and Typhus. 
So let's go a little bit into what Rocky Mountain spotted fever looks like. Who gets it and how might they know? Yeah. So uh, if you're here in the United States, interestingly, it's not really concentrated in the Rocky Mountains. It's more actually in Appalachia, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, that kind of area. And really, Josh, you know, where all the good things regularly happen. Oh, God. That rickettsia rickettsii uh, is also called Brazilian spotted fever. Um, so you can see it throughout the Western Hemisphere. You see it in Canada. You see it in Mexico, several countries in Central and South America, including Argentina, Brazil, Colombia. I suppose you could say that these rickettsioses have been spotted say that. in and many places. I would be obliged. It's a fever, to, that, oh. it's a, it's a fever that is spotted around the world. You know, everyone from... Adults to pediatrics, everywhere in between is vulnerable to Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. If you decide to walk around and hike through these areas without using permethrin on your clothes and using uh, DEET repellent, probably going to get a tick on you. And it starts sucking your blood. And out in the saliva come the little rickettsia, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And what most of you guys will feel after an, a certain incubation period, start with a fever. That's the first one. So a lot of people can have Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever without spots. They get like a flu-like illness, almost feels like a bad fever and headache and muscle aches. And it kind of comes and goes for about 70%. They'll get a rash. It starts about two to four days after the fever begins. And it can look like red splotches or pinpoint dots. And this is where that black measles came from, Josh. It, it almost looks like you're getting the measles with the initial red splotches over your, over your body. The difference being that characteristically, rather than going from head to toe like measles, this one starts at your wrists and ankles. Cufflinction, <laughs> you can call it that, yeah. And so you get the, the rash. So the headache is an intense rash. frontal headache. A lot of people, Josh, if they're not suspecting Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, will actually mistake this for another really scary disease, which is meningococcal sepsis. So Neisseria meningitidis, which can also show up with a rash, a horrible headache, and a fever. And so um, people, you know, if they, if they don't tell you their travel history, where they've been, if you don't look at the rash, because a lot of the time will rash will turn into petechiae, or actually little bruises, pinpoint bruises that don't blanch when you push down on them. And so that petechial sign, along with fever and headache, sends us as clinicians into like overdrive. We, we think that this patient's going to die. So if, if you don't tell them, oh, you know, this kind of happens slowly, gradually, you know, you may get diagnosed with meningococcal sepsis and get a whole different, you know, uh, therapy for this. And because of the 5 to 14 day incubation period for most of these rickettsial diseases, as a tourist, you're really not going to experience any symptoms during your trip. So the disease may not start until you've returned home or like within a week after you've already been back. So it's really important to tell your doctor if you've been, if you've traveled somewhere recently, because that could be a clue, especially if you've spent any significant time outdoors. And even though most tick-based diseases are seen in the summer where it's warm and ticks are more likely to be out, there is one kind 
of uh, rickettsia, I think epidemic typhus that occurs more in impoverished communities, impoverished communities where body lice are prevalent and outbreaks tend to occur during colder months where you have large groups of people gathering together. Yeah, they kind of huddle, right? So that's the, you know, that's the kind of thing. So doctors, if any of you are listening, you see fever, headache, rash. Okay, you're thinking of meningococcus, but get a travel history. Um, see if they had kind of a gradual course rather than a sudden course and see if there's a potential for tick exposure wherever they've been. The nice thing about this is if you catch it early enough, you give them, you know, a single medication, doxycycline, the vast majority of them will be just fine. And I I think we've covered this before, but isn't doxycycline kind of the standard for any tick-borne disease? Yeah, we we call it the catch-all for weird and wild diseases. So, you know, oh, uh, I was out hunting and I skinned a rabbit. You know, that's tularemia, right? That's treated with doxycycline. Or um, I work on a farm, started feeling fevers after I helped birth a calf or something like that. That's brucella, doxycycline. You know, these common everyday situations that your average citizen is very likely to come across. <laughs> no, no, but <laughs> hey, listen, first world. <laughs> you know, we're urbanites here in, in the developed world. That's absolutely true. But um, these are ubiquitous around the world. And so there's actually a lot more people who are exposed to these than are not. But it is true if you're. I imagine they're not being exposed while listening to many podcasts. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> There's probably not my brother, you know, one of my one of my Indian brothers on a farm going, Oh my goodness, did you hear him? We need to take doxycycline. The doctor on the podcast, yes. Yeah, no. I, I don't think that I don't think that Venn died. <laughs> and Amir looks up and he's like, sure, I really sure. wish you'd stop talking in that ridiculous sure, accent. Shame on- so how deadly is this? Your chances of recovering from this are, you know, over 90% without a lot of problems. And by the way, we're just focused fever at this time. However, there are a few scary things to think about. So um, we, we do have to worry if you have a pregnant mom. We still give doxycycline to pregnant moms, but we actually do have to worry, you know, that Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever can pass to the baby. We have to be a little bit careful about that. But interestingly, Josh, baby, by and large, will probably be okay as long as you treat mom. We do have, as an alternative to doxycycline, chloramphenicol, where it's available to treat Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, including, you know, with pregnant women. But if you have a person who's uh, immune compromised, if they're very, very young or very, very old, then your chances of, you know, long-term sequelae from... uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever get a little bit higher. So how long do you usually have to be treated with this? And are there any risks for reinfection? Well, the duration of treatment is, uh, it's kind of interesting. We say at least three days after the patient's fever goes away, we go around seven days of therapy. Once it's gone, it's gone. Now, I will talk to you uh, in a little bit about um, typhus, because that's the other one that I want to cover the other rickettsia in this uh, 80 plagues episode. But for rickettsia, rickettsii, and the other spotted fevers, we have like a better, a bre- a better prognosis. 
So let's move on to Typhus. What makes it different and how does that? You know, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is, uh, you know, this kind of a breakout rash and a fever, you know, got bit by a tick and everything else. And you you could be in some serious trouble, 20% mortality if you don't get therapy. Here in the United States, murine typhus, uh, the one that we normally see, is actually not a big deal. It's uh, transmitted by a flea. The major thing that we have to worry about here in the United States, and it's actually out where I live here in beautiful Glendale, California, is that you get rodents running through the tall grass and they're interacting with other things like cats and the fleas jump around and they transmit the typhus bacteria, rickettsia typhi. And then, you know, one lands on one of us humans and it bites us and we get a fever and some of us can get a prolonged fever and a headache and feel really bad but believe it or not this particular typhus is quite benign and there are a few i'd say more than a few people who will get a fever a headache they'll get those same like flu-like symptoms no rash really and then you know they'll just get better on their own um, and they, they'll say, oh, you know, I had the flu last week or something like that. And they'll never really seek any therapy. However, if your doctor kind of has the right idea and says, oh, man, you know, you were walking around uh, Griffith Park or something like that. You were hiking. Maybe you have typhus. If you get a dose of doxycycline, it may kind of knock it out and, uh, and help you drop your fever uh, so that you don't have to suffer for, you know, something like 5, 7, 10, 14 days. So it's actually not that bad. And it, we probably, in our practice, at least out here in California, uh, other places to think about, Hawaii, Texas, and of course, the place where you find everything bad in the United States, Florida, uh, especially along the Gulf Coast. Oh, gosh. Florida, please get your poop in the group. <laughs> so uh, murine typhus is found across the Gulf Coast like that. So you can kind of trace a line from Tampa around uh, the Panhandle, Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, down to Houston, Texas. Now, there is another form of typhus, and that's the epidemic typhus we talked about, right, Josh? And this, was, this is the Laos-born. So this was the one that we had going through the 1920s. People were crowded. They were shoved into areas together. Bad sanitation. You had thousands upon thousands of body lice just jumping from human to human and just sucking blood meals and delivering rickettsia. Now this one, sir, high fever, horrible headache. Um, you can get a rash that goes inside out instead of outside in. So it starts on your stomach, belly, chest and then goes out and then turns into those petechiae, you know, those purple dots. And now this epidemic typhus uh, can progress to central nervous system disease. So, you know, it can, it can hurt your brain, pericarditis and myocarditis so that it, you know, destroys your heart. And now in the pre-antibiotic era, Josh, 60% mortality with this one. And unfortunately, even though sanitation has gotten better and, you know, you have Laos control, you've broken up, um, you know, crowded groups of people, at least here in the United States, it's still present in the forests in a sylvatic form. And the, the major host, believe it or not, is your beautiful little flying squirrel. That's the definitive host.
Oh, G-Rock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, not the moose, the squirrel. Golly, Bullwinkle! <laughs> that's really good, yeah. So that's the sylvatic form of the epidemic typhus. It's the It's the same bug. It's just... Even if you're treated properly, you can get a relapse of this form of typhus, of epidemic typhus, Golly, called Brill-Zinser disease. So it's a lesser form of the same symptoms, fever, headache, rash, that can show up years later. So the typhus can actually hide out in your tissues. And Dr. Zinser is actually fantastic. He was uh, a writer and a poet. Um, and he actually wrote a book called Rats, Lice, and History, a chronicle of pestilence and plagues. Everybody go out there, learn about typhus, learn about spotted fevers. We didn't really cover uh, Ehrlichia and Anaplasma. That is pretty much it for at least a casual into this plague. Now, it's only fair that we talk about a very brief just the tip. And let's see. <laughs> We talked both about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and and Idaho. <laughs> okay. Wait, uh, Josh, there's no tip, tips about Idaho. It's just beautiful badlands and rocks and you're done. Come on. Well, well, no. I mean, I know you're expecting me to talk about the Idaho Potato Museum in in Blackfoot, Idaho. Just an hour drive from Yellowstone. Oh, that would make you corny and stereotypical. <laughs> Or, or I could talk about the technical legal loophole that puts a 50-mile murder zone in Yellowstone National Park. That's right. The, the place where, you know, like if you're supposed to be um, put on trial by a group of your peers, there are technically no peers there because there's no district, so there's no court. Correct. The you'd the only peers would be trees and bears. Hey, Ooh, boo -boo. That sounds cool. <laughs> but instead, I'm going to talk about Arco, Idaho, where the very first experimental nuclear reactor, the world's first atomic power plant, is now a museum open to the public where you can waltz in and see what a control room looks like. Ooh, that sounds cool, though. Yeah. So it first powered up in 1951. Uh, running nuclear power to turn on four light bulbs, just, you know, to see if they could do it. And and this tiny little toaster-sized nuclear reactor proved the concept of nuclear power. And after that, reactors began popping up all over the rest of the U.S. And it ran until 1964, never as a public plant, just like Very a test nice. source. So when the site was decommissioned because of the low amounts of radiation in use, it was turned into a museum devoted to itself. And now you can step into the control room. You can, you know, play with the buttons. And well, you can't play with them, but you know, you, you can touch a few things and visit it. And just, it's a nice look into nuclear history, and nothing potato related. Okay, and that concludes this week's episode of Around the World in Eighty Plagues, Rickettsia edition, Rickettsia and Morty. Ugh, hey Morty, it's all just intracellular, meaningless, pathological burp. <laughs> uh, 
that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. We love even more when you leave us ratings and reviews wherever you download your podcasts. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, as well as any sources that we used in researching the episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. No, no lollipop. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.